Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Vandalia, Michigan campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. All right. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so my name is Jimmy McKee. I, I half the time work and serve at, at New Day during the week, and the other half of the time I run a painting company where I'm in and out of houses, and, and so this, the reason I say that is to say that this series we're on right now, we're calling the Outward Journey, and the last couple weeks of it, we're talking about the practical Outward Journey. What does it mean on the ground? What does it look like to, to live outwardly in your day-to-day life? So like I said, half the time I'm, I'm, a, I'm a painter, and it would be very impractical for me to call myself a painter but never put paint on the walls. For one, I wouldn't make any money. And I couldn't, I couldn't really say I'm much of a painter. I could call myself a painter. But if I'm never putting paint on the walls, I'm impractical in, in my estimation of, of my title. I'm a painter, but I never paint anything. So am I really a painter? We're talking practically. What does it look like to be a Christian and live as a Christian on the ground outwardly, right? The, the outward journey is, is what, is what it, it motivates us and pulls us and moves us beyond the walls of any, any gathering into the, the common places and spaces that we find ourselves in a given week. Whether it's at work or in your leisure time with your friends and family or just on the street, which is what we're going to be talking about today, we want to look at practically what does it look like to live this thing out? So, we're, called, we're calling this thing the practical outward journey. The whole outward journey is this last part of 2017. We've looked at the inward journey, growing spiritually inwardly, recognizing the places and needs in our own life for more of God and, and, and growing toward that inward journey. The upward journey was the middle part of the year where we looked at who God is, what His character is like, so that when we see Him for who He is, we become more like Him. And we're transformed into His image. And this outward journey is based off of this passage right here, John 20, uh, 19-21, where Jesus says this. This is after His resurrection, before the disciples saw Him. They're, they're hiding in fear of the Jews. And this is the scene. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw him. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And right, this is to the disciples, and we inherit this same commission. It's recorded for the benefit of everyone who would come to be a follower of Jesus, to say, as the Father has sent me, in the same way I am sending you. So, so that's our hope today, is to look at what it looks like to be sent on the street. Today is practical outward journey, streets. We, if you look at the life of Jesus throughout the Gospels, he spent a lot of time on the streets. Like a crazy amount of time walking on streets and back alleys and roads. It's estimated that he walked about 15,000 miles in his lifetime. So he lived in Nazareth, 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 
way up here. And every year, three times a year, faithful Jews walking to Jerusalem for, for the annual festivals. And that's about 70 miles. So, in one way. So, there and back, it's 140 miles. You're doing that three times a year as a family. Every year, three times. And we began his earthly ministry. He's going back and forth to Galilee, which is way in the north, at the top of the Sea of Galilee. A couple of times, he's in Caesarea Philippi, way up there. But then he's going down to Jerusalem, Bethlehem. He's down in Judea once in a while. And that's about 110 miles back and forth. So he's constantly walking on the street. And you know, it's crazy. He didn't have, you know, he didn't have an iPhone. He didn't have his favorite music bumping in his headphones to keep him occupied. He didn't have a, you know, a book to listen to or something to occupy him. He's with his disciples. He's having conversations. He's interacting with people on the way. He's constantly on the way from somewhere to somewhere, but he's not so preoccupied with the destination that he forgets the process of, of going from point A to point B. That's where we find ourselves on the street. So we're looking at the street today, and, and I want to look at two parts. The street that you live on, the, the literal street that you live on, and then the street where you're going between point A and point B. The, any, any place and space where it's not, you're not, it's not your work, you're not seeing these people regularly, on, the, on your street you are, your neighbor's, but your neighbors are also anyone that you would see in the day. When you have an interaction with somebody, they are now entering in the realm of being your neighbor, which is what we'll look at in just a bit. So this is another map. I kind of like maps. So this is really, these are the roads. The yellow is the kind of the, the normal roads. The red, if you can see it, well, those are the major Roman roads. Uh, the Roman Empire really... If you ever heard of the phrase Roman road, they were known for, for the infrastructure and building roads in, in the whole area that they had dominion. So these are some of the common roads that, that Jesus would have likely traveled on from point A to point B. So he's constantly on the street. We want to look at the story that takes place when he's, when he's going from point A to point B today in the story of the Good Samaritan. So the question is, what does the outward journey look like on the street? This is the story recorded in Luke 10. Only a Good Samaritan story is only found in Luke. And it, and, it, and it starts like this. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, and when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, also known as a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. 
And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, The one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, Yes, now go and do the same. So Jerusalem to Jericho, it's about 18 miles. Jerusalem's up on on a hill or a mountain even. And Jericho is about a half mile down in the, in the valley, toward the Jordan Valley, where the Jordan River is at. It's about 18 miles, and it's notorious for thievery, bandits, robbers. You, if you're going to get attacked by bandits, it's probably going to be on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It, would have, it wouldn't have been... If they, people hearing this story, but, oh, another one. Another one attacked on the way to Jericho. That's, I don't, that's why I don't go there anymore. This is a dangerous route. In fact... I just made this connection this morning. So, so you know, this, when Jesus is being Pilate, at the end of his life, Pilate goes to the, to the Jewish crowd and says, who do you want me to release? You want me to release Barabbas or sentence Jesus? And they say, crucify Jesus, crucify Jesus. Barabbas is described as a bandit. So Barabbas is one who is sentenced for murder because in the... Like, it wouldn't have necessarily been on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, but it was in that sort of situation where he attacked and killed somebody who, who was on their way from point A to point B, and he robbed them and, and killed them. So that's, that's Barabbas. And they, and they, and they release Barabbas and, and say, no, we want, we want Jesus to, to take that punishment. So from here, that's about from here to Granger. I had to look it up and. I don't know this, this area that well, but if you were to walk, it'd be from here on your feet, from here to Granger, is about Jerusalem to Jericho. But it would be downhill the whole way, and there'd be caves and, and robbers looking to attack you. <laughs> so, so the question the guy asks is, he wants to test Jesus, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this is a, this is a lawyer trained in the Torah. This is his textbook is the Torah. Genesis, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Exodus. Not in that order. And he knows this stuff. And so Jesus, he's like, you tell me. I mean, this is your, this is your stuff. What, what does it say? And being a faithful Jew who knows his stuff, he quotes very infamous passages from the Old Testament, which are true. He goes, yeah, well, this is a question. And then he says, so he, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, chapter five, or verse 5. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 is the Hebrew Shema. To this day, Jewish people quote the Shema very least weekly on, on Shabbat. But, but often daily it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. That's how it starts. And so this is, this is elementary, right? So he quotes it. 
And then he jumps, he skips around to to this other passage in Leviticus 19, where it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And what, what, what's happening here and what came to be common understanding in first century Jewish thought was that a neighbor is the sons of your own people. That's what a neighbor is. And so, so he gives the right answer. Jesus says, right, do this and you will live. But maybe the lawyer wanted a little more eternal security. He says, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Like you tell me. Now, you, they, people say you're the Messiah. People say you have the answers. So tell me. I mean, I already gave you. Tell me who my neighbor is. And Jesus doesn't answer the question. He really doesn't. The question is, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story to describe what a neighbor looks like. This is what a neighbor looks like. Who was the neighbor? So he, avo- he doesn't answer the question. He realizes that he's, he's, he's being set up. And Jesus very tactfully tells this story to, to trap the man, actually. But I want to point out two tensions to start. One is the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. So, so this man knows the word. He knows the law. And so he... He quotes the two passages we just referred to. And then we see in the story a priest and a Levite. Okay, Both were part of the tribe of Levi. The Levites called the temple assistant because within the tribe of Levi, the priests were a holy order who were dedicated solely to the Lord, to the ministry of the presence, where the Levites were temple assistants anywhere from musicians to, to janitors of the temple. Right In ancient Israel, everyone of the tribes of Israel got proportioned land, except for the tribe of Levi. They were said, You're, you, the Lord is your inheritance. Everywhere, every tribe will be hospitable to you because you are for the temple. This is the tribe of Levi. These are, these are the holy people, if anyone is. And they're not without precedent for their, for their behavior. Right? They both avoid the man appearing to be dead on the road. And, and they, they could legitimately try to finagle the law and make a defense for their actions. There's several passages in the Old Testament. Here's two of them that, that talk about the need to be ceremonially clean. And so Numbers 19 says, All those who touch a dead human body will be ceremonially unclean for seven days. Now, if your job is to be clean and to take care of the temple, you don't want to not work for seven days. Right? So the priests and Levites well, he, I, maybe he looked dead, right? I don't want to touch him. If I touch him, I'm, I'm dirty. I'm, I'm unclean and I can't work. I can't do my job. The next, uh, chap, next verse in Leviticus 21 one is, is particular to the, to the priests. The Lord said to Moses, Give the following instruction to the priests, to the descendants of Aaron. A priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean by touching the dead body of a relative. Now, this man lying on the, on the road was a Jewish man, a relative. You can't touch him because you, that would make you unclean. And so, hypothetically, the Jewish, the, the priest and the Levite could say, hey, I can't, I can't be unclean. This, he looked like he was dead. However, interestingly, this is only partially 
Um, it's interesting that this, there's, a next, there's another passage. There, this is, it's a small view of what, of what they're seeing. The Samaritan man um, has a different perspective. Even, even in their justification of themselves, there's a passage right within that same context, Leviticus, where it says, Do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native-born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. There was a lot of hostility between Jews and Samaritans in that day. So here's a brief crash course history of, of why there was this... Ra- it was racism, really. It was, it was explicit racism in the ancient world. Jews and Samaritans hated each other, and Jews viewed Samaritans as subspecies, as an abomination to Yahweh, essentially because this is why. Under David, we're, we're, we're moving 1,000 years back, King David, there's a united monarchy where, where everyone is under his reign. Okay, Solomon, things are getting a little bit loose because he's, he's getting a little crazy. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, after Solomon, Rehoboam, now the the kingdom's split. Rehoboam becomes king of the south, which is called the kingdom of Judah. Jeroboam becomes king of the north, which is called the kingdom of Israel. So now there's a divided kingdom. Okay, so in 722, there's constant disobedience on both parties. 722 B.C., Assyrians are in control of the whole region. Assyrians are in the north. Assyrians come down and attack the northern kingdom, Israel. And the way they did exile was that they took people from every land that they conquered and they put them in a blender. So they said, okay, you people from the north, you people from the south, I'm going to take 10 of you, or 10%, put them up here, 10%, put them over here, 30%, bring them down into Israel. I'm going to take 50% of Israel, bring them up into Babylon. And they just, so where after they had taken control of the northern kingdom, there was a, it was a melting pot of all different races, all different religions, all different nationalities. Judah, Judah was spared at that point when Assyria was in control. They, they were on the breaches and then they, was, it was, they were not overthrown. You can read about it in, in the Old Testament in the book of Kings. But then in five, 130 years later, Babylon's in control of the region. Okay, Babylon's now the whole region, the regional power. Babylon conquers the kingdom of Judah. It's this 586 BC. And Babylon says, we don't do exile like Assyria did exile. We're taking every influential person who knows anything and we're taking them all to Babylon. And so there's some remnants of people left over who don't know anything about anything. But they took everyone that they could and brought them up to Babylon. Okay, so then. Now Persia is in control hundreds of years later. You read about it in Nehemiah and Ezra. They're able to come back to the land of Israel, the southern kingdom. And in the land they find Samaritans. These are people who who were part of the northern kingdom of Israel hundreds of years prior who are now practicing a a weird combination of, of Yahweh worship and Baal worship and all sorts of things. And so Ezra, if you read about it, it calls for these divorce edicts where he says, do not marry. If you're married, you need to divorce anyone who tries to say that they're worshiping Yahweh, but they don't know anything about what they're talking about. Okay, this is in the region of Samaria. There's Galilee, Samaria, Judah. 
Okay, so now back to the first century, from the point of return, when, when the, Israelite, or the kingdom of Judah returned to, to the Jerusalem, there's this racial tension between people just 30 miles north in Samaria and the people in Judah, where they try to act like they're worshiping Yahweh, but they don't know what they're doing. It's a bunch of different races, a bunch of different people who, don't, who are not Jewish anymore. And so now, this is Samaria and this is Jerusalem. So you can see there's this, there's this religious fervor mixed in with racial tension where the Jewish people viewed Samaritans as abominations. You are not the people of God. You do not have an inheritance. You cannot say that you know the God of Yahweh. And so, we see here in this story a... The second tension is, is just a, a racial tension. I'll just read this a little small, but it's not the person from the radically different culture on the other side of the world that's hardest to love, but the nearby neighbor whose skin color, language, rituals, values, ancestry, history, and customs are different from one's own. Jews, did ha- Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. With whom do we have no dealings? That's the question that we need to face based off of this, this story. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter really whatever would be the dividing line, whether it's the, the, the race, their sexual orientation, their, uh, their religion. Okay, we're talking, it doesn't matter if, if, if somebody is white or black, Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist or gay or straight or any combination of anything. We, we, we see here in the in Leviticus 19 passage that any foreigner, anyone who has, who, where there's a difference, you're to love them like you love your neighbor. So the question again is... With whom do we have no dealings? We see a challenge here in this in the story of the Good Samaritan to recognize that the Samaritan man becomes the hero of the story. It's the Samaritan man who Jesus puts in, in the spotlight. And the, and the Jewish lawyer isn't even able to say that it's it's, it's the Samaritan man who was the neighbor. He says, the, the one who showed him mercy. It's a passive way to say that guy. That, that one who, who I don't even want to say their name or their, where they're from because I, can't, I don't want to think about it. But he's the one who's a hero. So, so the question again... The, the, the lawyer asks, well, who is, my, who is my neighbor? How would we answer that question? Like, are there, are there faces that come to your... Are there names of people that come into your, into your mind when you, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you ask yourself the question, who is my neighbor? We want to look at... Um, oh, this... This is uh, just, to sh- just to show the, the racial tension. In just, just a, a chapter earlier, 
from when Jesus tells the story, he sets his face to Jerusalem and he, and he sends messengers ahead to go into the villages of Samaria and see if they'll host him. It says, when they entered a village, I'm jumping into verse 52, chapter 9. When they entered the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements, they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you, do you want us to command to fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You can see the racial animosity here. He turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And he went on to another village. Just a chapter later, he tells a story where the Samaritan man is now the hero. Not only do I not want you to call them fire, but I want you to see that there's, I'm flipping this whole paradigm upside down. So, how do you answer the question, who is my neighbor? I want to look at two different dimensions of that question. There's your literal neighbor who lives on your literal street, whether it's a house you live in or an apartment or, or wherever, they live on your literal street. So these are the, the actual, if you're going to take this idea of neighbor at the most basic level, these are your neighbors. And then there's a comprehensive neighbor who is anyone who you might have the chance to meet. Where Jesus expands the definition of neighbor now to not only include the people on your street, but the people who you might come in contact with. Two categories of neighbors. What would it look like, in the first category, what would it look like to take the commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, literally, for our actual neighbors? The people who live, I mean, around here it's probably more than 50 feet, but a couple hundred yards away from you. Or maybe, maybe it's not, maybe it is 50 feet. Maybe it's miles, I don't know. What would it look like to literally love them? The question is, do you know the names of the people who live closest to you? This is that's step one. That's step one. Do you know their names? This is basic. Because if you, I mean, you, there's no basis for a relationship if you don't know somebody's name. You, take, you go from name, you get to know their name, now you're an acquaintance. Now, now, now you have some sort of interaction where you see them, you can say, hi, so-and-so. And then, and then you get to know a little bit more about them. This takes intentional interaction with the people who live closest to you. And it can be easy to avoid. In fact, it can be so normal that even for us as Christians, it can, it can be, we can finagle the commandment that's in front of us and say, well, I have, my neighbor is, everyone's my neighbor. I know a lot of people, and they're all my neighbors, right? But I mean, what would it look like to literally take this at face value and say, who, who are the people who live closest to me and do I love them? Do I care for them? I think, I think we would begin to see community transformation, in fact. If every Christian took this commandment seriously, we would see a radically different world, in fact. We would see... We would see dinners happening with, with neighbors in every nook and cranny of this country where, where Christians identify themselves. We would see discipleship happening in a very basic way over a conversation, over inviting someone to do something with you that you're already doing. Right? You're already going to be cooking dinner or you're already going to be having dinner. Okay, Invite them over for it. 
You're already going to be watching the football game. Okay, you don't need to do that alone. There's, there's, there's endless possibilities to have interactions with your neighbors. And this is a challenging idea because it's so, e- it's so basic, yet it's so easy to avoid. We, we recently have experienced this sort of, we've been on the receiving end of this sort of neighborly love. We just recently moved into a neighborhood up in Kalamazoo. And we moved in and uh, the week we moved in, we received two b- bottles of wine from the people across the street. They've lived there for 35 years, and they said, welcome to the neighborhood. It's so glad to have you here. And we were like caught off guard, like, wow, we, we feel welcome here. We don't know anybody, but now we do. A couple weeks later, we had Ezra, our baby, who's now like five weeks old, on his way to six weeks old. And uh, I, I look out my window, and I see Chuck, our neighbor, raking our leaves. I go out and I said, Chuck, thank you. You don't have to do that. He's like, it's fine. I know. You got a baby to worry about. I'm just, I'm just helping. You got to leave. I'm just helping you out. It's, it, was, it was amazing. I'm like, this is, I'm, I'm sitting here wrestling with, ah, oh, what does it look like to love my neighbor? And this guy is in my front yard raking my leaves. There's so many practical opportunities in front of us when we, when we begin to digest and really look to, take this commandment seriously to love our neighbors as ourselves. So that's their literal neighbor who they cannot escape this commandment. If anyone can escape this commandment, it's your literal neighbor. Okay, then we can, then we can broaden it out from there and say, okay, who's my neighbor in the, in the comprehensive sense? In the sense where everyone I come in contact with, everyone who's right in front of me is my neighbor. Any other man, irrespective of race, religion, to whom we have the chance to meet. How do I love them? Now this is a little bit more undefined because it's not contextual in the sense of it's in your neighborhood or on your street. But the encouragement is simply this. Be present to God. Be aware of what, what, what God is up to. And then be present to the moment. We're so easily occupied with, with, with the next thing. On the street is point A to point B. I'm going somewhere. Are we interruptible? Am I interruptible when an when a, when a opportunity presents itself right in front of me to say, hey, I'm the one. I'm the one who has the opportunity to love this person. I'm the one who has the opportunity to take care of this need. I'm the one who has the opportunity to show the love of God into a moment. The definition of spontaneous is... An interruption of the scheduled. And little and big opportunities to be spontaneous in our love are all around us when we open our eyes. You can't, I mean, if you can't schedule spontaneity because it's an interruption of the schedule. But you need to be willing to, be, to act in a moment and be spontaneous to, to an opportunity to love the person in front of you. Whether it's on, I'll just... I have it written out here. This is kind of a summary of what I'm trying to say. Whether it's your neighbor on your literal street or neighbor in the street who is different from you in every way, race, religion, language, socioeconomic strata, or both. What I mean by both is, depending on where you live, this is not, these are not mutually exclusive. We live in a, in a, in a world, in a, in a country that's all mixed up full of different people, different, different religions, different races, different ethnicities, and, and, 
economic status is all on the same street. And so d- depending on where you live, this is, not, this is the same thing. My neighbor down the street is, is from a different part of the world, and my neighbor down the street is, does not know anything about Jesus. Either way, we see from this story a love that is moved by compassion unto sacrifice of precious supplies, oil and wine, personal assets, his own donkey, personal time. He took him to an inn and stayed with him until morning. We don't know what he had planned in Jericho on his way, but we know he, he pressed pause on it to take him to the inn to stay with him until morning. In personal finances, he paid for at least two full days worth of his own personal money. So he paid two denarii. A denarii is a kind of a common term for a, a full day's wage for a working man. So he gave, he gave him a deposit of two full day's wages for the, the man wounded. A love that is moved by compassion and to sacrifice for the neighbor, for the other. So with that, either right now you're feeling a combination of things. I'm guessing. You're feeling like, man, I'm a bad neighbor. <laughs> like, I have not been doing this stuff. I do not know my neighbor's names. I do not even know what they do. If I know their names, I don't know anything else. I've lived in the same house for 10 years, and I can't say that I know who so-and-so across the street. Or maybe I just moved in, and man, i got so many things going on. I don't know, I don't know the people I live among. Or maybe... It's more of a resolve you're feeling. Where it's like, man, 2018 is going to be a better year. I'm going to get to know those people. I'm going to get to, I'm going to get to, I'm going to be a better neighbor. I'm going to try harder. Or maybe there's a slim chance you're like, I've been doing this. I'm a really good neighbor. I really, I mean, I'm, I'm just checking off boxes as you're talking. I know exactly what this is, and I live it out. I'm, a, I'm, I'm doing good. Either way, depending on how you're feeling, none of that is sufficient to see any real and lasting resolve. Because it's based on your own resolve. It's based on your own initiative. Because if you know your own heart, you know that you'll never be able to sustain this. You'll never be able to just try harder. To just do better. We see in this story that there are actually two neighbors. There's a neighbor who's the exemplar, the Samaritan man, and then there's the one who that man is alluding to or is a shadow of, and it's actually the person telling the story. I think Jesus here is is referring to himself, that he is the Samaritan man. That Jesus actually is the one who who came from outside, disregarding the cost of salvation to, to save us, laying all his personal assets and, and abilities and character aside to say, I will, I will come to your, to your aid. He not only paid for our stay at a hotel so we could be made well and restored, but he gave his very life the ultimate sacrifice for us. And he didn't save us by telling us how to love our neighbor, like do this and do this and you will, you could be a good neighbor. He saved us by becoming our neighbor, taking on flesh and blood and loving us in our brokenness, loving us in our sin. So, so to, follow, to follow Jesus, to become a Christian, to live 
in this way is not to say I'm going to try really hard to be like the Good Samaritan. In fact, it's to say that I was the one who was lying half dead on the side of the road. Or I am the one who is lying half dead in the middle of the street. And, and, and a man named Jesus came and rescued me. And a man named Jesus came and picked me up and put, his on, put, put me on, on his own donkey and took me and restored me and healed me and saved me. That's what it means to, to follow Jesus is to recognize that he did this, he did this for us. We were, the, we were the one lying half dead with no, with no way out, with no way to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and figure it out. Until we see him like this, we'll never really be able to love our neighbor. Because a love for our neighbor can only truly come out of a love that we receive, fully given by God through his grace. It comes out of a place of receiving the love of God for yourself and being motivated and sustained to be able to give it away. Without, without the love of God in your life, Having received it, you'll never have the joy to push past the difficulties, the, the, the shut doors, the, the, the broken off conversations, and, or the peace to, to regroup and when you fail or when you miss an opportunity. Because you, don't, you won't have the connection with the love of God that, that motivates you to pick you back up, to restore you, and to keep moving. In the, in the Gospel of Luke there are two indicators that I, mean, that I think that Jesus is referring to himself. One is that the story Jesus tells says that the Samaritan man, unlike the, Jew, unlike the, the priest and the Levite, he was moved with compassion. Only, only, other, way, only other people who are talked about in that way is, is Jesus being moved with compassion to, to see the, 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 the person healed and the, the prodigal son's father. He's moved with compassion. That's the heart of God. And we see from the story of the, of the Good Samaritan that the Samaritan man is moved with compassion. It points us to the fact that, that it's referring to the heart of God. And then at the end, he doesn't want to admit that, it, that it's, the, it's the Samaritan man who was the hero. But he says, the one who showed him mercy. It's God exclusively in the Gospel of Luke that shows mercy. So it's, it's, it has to be, this story is, is, is Jesus is talking about his, his own, he's, he's on his way to Jerusalem, he's talking about himself. What I want to end with is this idea that the love of God and the love of neighbor are not, are inseparable. There's this quote, I don't have it up there, but it's from a 20th century theologian named Karl Barth. It says, no Praise of God is serious or can be taken seriously if it, if it is apart from the commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we can say that we praise God and we can say that we, that we worship Him, but what does that look like when you're presented with an opportunity to love your neighbor? If you separate the two, you're, 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 you're compartmentalizing this, this comprehensive idea to love God by loving your neighbor. And loving your neighbor is to love God and to showcase your love for God in the love for your neighbor. The lawyer's, the lawyer's initial question is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved, in other words? And it's both. It's love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 it's, I'm gonna, I'll, it's different. He says, yes, go and do likewise. The, the moral is that you can't do that in your own resolve. You need to receive the neighborly love of Jesus that came to you in your brokenness in order to be able to give away a true and authentic love for your neighbor. You've heard the phrase, maybe, if you haven't, I think it's true, that love or, I jumped ahead, that hurt people hurt people. If, if you're a hurt person, if you're broken inside, well, you're, you're going to be a bull in a china shop. You're going you're to hurt other people whether you realize it or not. I want to flip that on its head based off this story and, and just say that love people love people. That's, that's what we're talking about here. It's what it looks like to be a neighbor is just to say, we can't, we can't skip ahead and say, well, I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. You need, to, you need to know and receive and fully recognize the love of God that's been poured into your life through the, through the sacrifice of Jesus. Dying the death we should have died in our place and, and living the life we, we should have lived but could not. So that by believing in, in Jesus that we could be made right and restored to, to our, the image of God that we were created in. Love people, love people. Until you receive the love of God into your life, your ability to love others, to love your neighbor is, is cut off. So 2018, it's so New Year. Resolutions are being set. Goals are being made. And I, I, I do encourage you, and I would, get to know your neighbors, your actual neighbors, and be receptive and open to the opportunities for interruptions that present themselves throughout the day on this outward journey. We're ending the outward journey in many ways as a church, but it's just beginning for some of us in this regard. It's just beginning. And, it, and it's, it's an opportunity in front of us to love our neighbor, to, to set goals. Here's a simple goal. If you don't know the names of the people who live next to you, the four closest houses, you have a month. Go. <laughs> Get to know their names. Get to know their faces, their stories, their children, if they have any, what they do for a living. Get to know their, where they come from and their background a little bit so that a relationship's being built. These are the people God's called us to. They live right next to us. But as you're setting, as setting resolutions, setting goals, looking ahead into the new year and who you want to be, who you want to grow into, recognize that until we receive the love of God for ourselves, all, the, all, these, all these goals, all these resolutions are, are based off of our own effort rather than, than His love for us. Propelling us, compelling us, moving through us outward on this journey that He's called us to. Love people, love people. Let's keep this in mind and in reference as we seek to obey the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for your love. God, we recognize that just like this story shows, that just like the, the priest and the Levite can make excuses as to why they didn't show the love to their own neighbor, you, Jesus, are the one who's come to our aid, rejected by your own. To, to come and, and, and save us in a helpless state to come and love us and personally give of yourself everything, your very life, to restore us, to make us whole. God, we receive your love today and every day. Let that be the compelling nature of any effort to love the person in front of us. 
love people, love people. God, we pray that we would experience your love and from that place be able to love the people, our actual neighbors, and any, anyone who we might come in contact with for your glory and for, your, for, the, for, the, for the extension of your kingdom in the earth through the hands and the feet of the church. God, we give you glory this morning. We thank you for who you are and for what you are.